Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. There's only one thing to talk about this week and that is the fall of Boris Johnson. So Prime Minister Boris Johnson finally resigned on Thursday after more than 50 ministers quit his government in a 48-hour period. The beginning of the end was triggered by the Chris Pincher scandal, his wandering hands. Uh, Johnson tried to claim he had no knowledge of Pincher's reputation. This lie was quickly exposed and then the rest is history. Tom, when Boris Johnson first came to power, or certainly when he won the 2019 general election with this overwhelming mandate, there was a sense that he was unimpeachable, Mm. that he was going to be around for decades, for several terms, he was going to transform the country. And yet he's leaving after just three years, you know, roughly the same kind of time as Theresa May had. What, what do you think that means? What do you think that tells us? So much. And I'm sure we'll get into it over the course of this whole episode. I suppose ultimately the Boris project has failed, mm. um, given the fact that he's left Downing Street. And there's all kinds of different reasons for that. I think it's important to remember just how important that election was, how seismic mm. it was in securing Brexit, but also really sending a message to the establishment, which has spent the previous few years trying to overturn the vote for Brexit, trying to kind of reassert its authority after the Brexit vote to say who's in charge, essentially. All of that was really important. And it it really felt like there was a change in the air. You know, Um, Boris Johnson really rode that popular sentiment all the way to number 10 to to a very strong majority. And there was talk even at the time of like, you know, deepening this. You know, Mm -hmm. the Tories were um, talking in their manifesto about uh, reviewing the role of the House of Lords and judicial review and all these different things. They recognised that Brexit was about democracy. It wasn't about any of the allegations that were levelled at it in terms of xenophobia or whatever. It was this really moment which felt like it could turn into something transformative or at least would shift the dial in a more interesting direction. But as you say, less than three years later, we're here again, another Tory Prime Minister felled. And to ask you to answer the question of why that happened, I think there's two things that are true at the same time here. One of which is, of course, there has been a concerted effort to delegitimise him and bring him down. That's been yeah. obvious since day one. Um, this is, the reason he's resigned is, of course, is not really about Chris Pincher. The fact that it's ended with this is kind of farcical. Mm. And of course, the media and the political class have leapt on every scandal going in order to paint this government as illegitimate, as unlike any government that ever was before it, as uniquely kind of craven and lying and deceitful and all the rest of it. And there's a lot of people very excited, feeling like they've succeeded in trying to essentially oust this government, which they don't like because of Brexit. But on the same time, at the same time, the problem was was that Johnson was increasingly incapable of defending himself. Yeah, um, his government became increasingly incoherent um, to the extent that it had a program. It was one that actually was against the interests of a lot of ordinary people who originally put him there. Um, and as one scandal stacked on top of the other, with Number Ten increasingly incapable of doing anything other than fanning the flames. It got to the point where it had nothing to talk about but scandal, and it also had nothing else to point to. Yeah, uh, you got to a point where their votes, their voters were very demoralised. You know, there was a poll before he finally stepped down, talking that it was a majority of Tory voters were now suggesting he should resign. So much had he fucked it, basically. And I, I essentially think it's the coming together of those two things. Obviously, a very concerted effort from the media, from the political class, to reassert itself to get rid of what they see as this aberrant prime minister, only really because they dislike Brexit and populism so yeah. much. Really, he's a, he's a kind of conduit for that. But at the same time, I think Boris Johnson has proved himself fundamentally incapable of fighting the fight that he essentially picked with the establishment when he embraced Brexit, when he 
insisted on implementing it. And when he tried, and when he got a majority standing on the side of the people rather than the establishment, um, he failed to live up to that. He became mired in scandal. He became mired in his own kind of narrow concerns. And ultimately this is where we've ended up, but there's no doubt that it leaves a bitter taste and a fear of what might come next. Definitely. And Brexit, obviously one of the positives of this government, you know, no matter how imperfect, do you think Ella, that they kind of ran out of steam after, after Brexit, you know, uh, Tom is talking about this kind of drift that the government has. You could say it's even worse in some ways, you know, embracing things like net zero or failing to fight the culture wars. I mean, what do you make of that? It's, it's never sat well with me, this idea that um, Boris is the hero of Brexit. I mean, all, there are lots of things that are true. You know, he was the, in a kind of, basically a shower bastards who were trying to overturn democracy throughout the enti- almost the entirety of Westminster. Yeah. He stood out as being someone who, um, you know, whether opportunistically or not, who cares, did the right thing at the right time. Said he was going to respect the people's wishes. Which yeah. Which <laughs> astonishingly was a rare thing. And what, and what a low bar. Yeah. Um, but but the, the test of the man comes after mm. the win. And after 2019, the way in which he handled the pandemic, which we covered extensively on this podcast, yeah. the way in which he has talked about you know, even just sort of the way in which he's dealt with different policy areas, whether it's immigration or the withdrawal from Afghanistan or, you know, his obsession with, you know, net zero and green stuff and just kind of virtue signaling via environmentalism shows that he has fundamentally no understanding of the the key thing of Brexit, which mm. was about democracy and sovereignty and putting power back into the hands of the every man and woman. So, you know, I think he just gets too much credit for it. We ha- we've forgotten because we have been had it dragged out of us for so many years that Brexit was won by us, not him, and that it was only that he had to mop up the mistakes of other people who were trying to thwart it. So that that kind of irks me. But there there is also the case that you know the thing about Boris Johnson is that whether it was you know his wife Carrie, whether it was Dominic Cummings, or you know any of the others that he had in several aides, he always seemed to be a man who only did what the last person he whispered in his ear advised. Yeah. And actually, I think he's proven himself to be in, you know, he bowed under the pressure throughout the pandemic from, you know, the media, from the sort of scientific advisors who are suggesting things that were wildly unfair, like locking people up and arresting people for the most minor things. He had none of that sort of infamous libertarian liberal spirit Mm. came through when it really mattered. Yeah, I want to stick with the pandemic for a bit because um, that is arguably the most significant um, aspect of his premiership. You know, we forget that for months on end under Boris Johnson, we were locked in our houses. And, you know, for two of the three years of his premiership, there was some kind of COVID regulation, some kind of criminal offence for whether it's for not self-isolating at the, at the very tail end of it, or, you know, it's illegal to meet two people or to meet another person outdoors. What do you think that told us about Boris um, and his, you know, was he always a phony libertarian? Was he, as Ella just suggests, you know, mm. he too easily gives in to his advisors or experts? What, do you, what did you make of that? I think it's a bit of all of that. I mean, you know, who could, <laughs> in, in a sense, it's impossible not to take into account the pandemic and all the rest mm. of it. And also the fact that, you know, lockdown as punishing and liberals, dreadful as it was, it was also a product of kind of inter-elite groupthink. Like they were all doing the same thing at yeah. the same time. And Every it was, other country did it. And it wasn't just a case of being pressured by your own advisors. It was also a case of being pressured by, again, the kind of entire international set. Mm. Um, that's not to let him off the hook, but it provides a little bit of context. 
I guess. I mean, there's a lot of people who were accusing him as being a phony libertarian, this kind of merry England libertarian who then, you know, locks everyone in their houses and starts banging on about pudding taxes. I think <laughs> I, I, I think more fundamentally the issue is that he was always a bit of a phony populist. Um, mm. He was quite opportunistic. He did seize on this. He did write those two editorials, one leave, one remain, and all the rest of it. Um, but at the same time, and it's you can't help but be struck by the nature of the opposition to him. Within yeah. the Tory party itself, they have no idea what they're doing. Like mm. there's no factional basis to this. Um, a lot of them are just moving as individuals. You know, there's been people in the 2019 intake who frankly wouldn't be there without Boris Johnson and the campaign that he ran who have been agitating for him to leave for ages. So clueless are they as to how these things particularly work. So interested are they only really in their own central social media credit and anything else. Um, but, and then on the other side, of course, you've got the arraigned forces of anti-populism, which yeah. are, who are genuinely seeing this as an opportunity to, as Lord Heseltine put it, first Boris, then Brexit. Hmm. And by that, they also mean populism. So on the one hand, I think he has shown himself up to be a bit of a phony, but we're, we're caught in this problem is that we've got phony populists and we've got anti-populists and not much in between. And working that out and trying to make sure that the people's desire for more democracy, which this government briefly embodied and embraced, doesn't get lost in that infighting to come, I guess. And sticking with that kind of anti-populist points, I mean, one of the striking features of the past couple of years um, has been Boris derangement syndrome, I think mm. you could call it, where, mm. you know, you hinted at this earlier, Tom, you know, Boris is the most evil, worst mm. prime minister ever, um, the biggest liar we've ever known in, in, in politics. And clearly, you know, Brexit is behind that. But there's, uh, what, what have you made of that? I mean, it, it's exposed his opponents as kind of as as unhinged even if he is incompetent uh, jonathan frieden wrote an article uh, column in the guardian today discussing brexit but he called him a populist and you could hear the kind of hiss <laughs> of the populist in in his words it's like he's a villain because he was in favor or at least pretended to be in favor of brexit whatever but there's been if you look kind of back along the sort of scope of boris johnson's career um sort of after he became mayor but one while he was in the sort of wings to be a hopeful prime minister there have been you know various things that people have leapt on so back at the time when there was that discussion about the letterbox comment mm. um you know the, everyone everyone was sort of saying this cannot be forgotten it's horrendous he's a he's a bigot he's an islamophobe and then it didn't really work and so they move on to the next thing oh actually he's you know, this kind of, you know, serial shagger, who knows how many kids he has. He's a horrendous kind of womanizer. Okay, maybe he is, but you know, again, that didn't stick. And then it moves on and on and on. And I think Tom's really right that it, it pretty much feels like, you know, with the context of the pandemic and all of that and the excuses taken into account that, you know, what has this prime minister's period in office been about? It's just been about scandal after scandal after scandal. And one that's to do with his own incompetence and his inability to rise above it and put forward some exciting policies. But it's also the case that his opponents, or even actually his his people who are meant to be loyal to him in his own people party, side, yeah. have have sort of really done a disservice to politics because they've turned it into this very apolitical thing of, you know, they on the one hand they bemoan, oh, the you know, the increase in the politics of personality this is terrible. We're becoming more presidential and he's like Trump. But then at the same time you think, well, all you go on about is his, is the person that the personality of Boris is the fact that you don't like that he's kind of buffoonish and all these things. You don't actually, you're completely on side with him and his approach to the cost of living crisis. You're even the opposition doesn't have any difference to say to him in relation to his approach to the pandemic. So you just don't like the guy. Mm. And, and that comes across to voters and people who voted for the Conservative Party and people who didn't. It's just a cheapening of politics. It's like, is this all that it's about? 
um, you know, <laughs> Brent O'Neill in his column this week called the people who have, you know, the people within the Conservative Party have brought the demise of Boris about pound shop brutuses, which yeah. it really is. It's like you pathetic people who stand for nothing other than your opposition to Boris. Tom, um, one of the things that Boris and his government uh, promised us was it was going to launch a war on woke. Mm. How did that go? Did that war even take place? Not particularly. Um, and I think that's <laughs> one of the things that it really is one of the missed opportunities of this mm. particular period, which is to take the culture war seriously, to, to realise that it's not just something that's either a distraction, as some people on the identitarian left might say, or made up. And it's nor is it kind of silly, nor is it just a way to land blows against um, woke lefties and yeah. to take the piss out of them because they have such own crazy views. Own the libs, whatever. It's really quite serious. Mm. Um, and Frank Frady said this on Brendan's podcast this week. The thing about the culture war is it is a war. You have to fight it. Like, it's yeah. not just something that you can giggle at from the sidelines, which I think is probably the most you could say this government actually did. Now, there were some pointed interventions on some of the um, issues of the day. Um, obviously, there was um, recently talk of mandating, making sure single-sex toilets and all the rest of it. The government has been relatively brave on some of those kind of issues around gender mm. ideology, um, but ultimately has fundamentally failed to slow the takeover, essentially, of all of these different institutions by this ideology. It was almost like the more the, gov um, the government um, would try to engage in some sort of like rhetoric around it, the more it would just almost inevitably, mm. you know, take one institution after the other. <laughs> so I think that will go down as something that it's fundamentally failed to do. And there's, a, there's a lack of recognition of how serious this stuff is because it has a fundamental impact on how resources in society, how state services, um, how um, kids are educated, all of this stuff is really, really important. And yet on this, as on so many other issues, uh, the government just seemed kind of limp, apologetic. Yeah. And that was, the, that was always a bit of a problem with Boris Johnson. He wants everyone to love him. Mm. And the social set he comes from is fundamentally a kind of metropolitan liberal set, meaning that on these quite tense battles, he can at best triangulate. And whether it was on the culture war or Brexit or anything else, that was one thing he always struggled with, I think, with the fact that sometimes you do have to go to war and he's the sort of person who, despite his Churchillian, you know, <laughs> um, affectations, <laughs> is not prepared for that in many yeah. respects, particularly on the domestic scene. So I think it's fair to say that he failed to fight the war on woke, but in terms of the other great or bad regressive ideology of our age, greenism, Johnson was a bit of a zealot, you know, short of gluing his face to a train or something like that. He was he was the big champion of green, which is uh, incredible. Shows the superficiality of his of his politics because uh, no, he is. I, I bet if you got left in a you know waiting for a train with him for five hours and actually managed to find out something about the man, you'd you'd know that he doesn't really believe in the idea of net zero and that he's not up for composting everything and being you know like he's not about to join Extinction Rebellion himself. He very you know astutely understood that as a Tory, there needed to be something nice about him. And the nice thing about him, you know, with being a London mayor and all that kind of stuff was that he liked green stuff. He liked environmentalism and the whole, you didn't know, work though, did it? No, it didn't <laughs> work. Ingratiating him. No, yeah. but, it was, him, but... It, it was this idea that, you know, that, that it kind of fundamentally shows the problem with his understanding of democracy, because the idea that you could be pushing for net zero and the kind of punitive green measures that the government is still pushing for at a time when you're also opining from, you know, the dispatch box about how terrible it is that people can't afford to heat their homes and that kind of thing. 
means that he just cannot get into the mind of the voter. He has no interest actually in looking and understanding about what what matters for people about being in control of politics. I think he was sort of looking for a program. Mm. And I think this was one of the things that sort of took place where it was like, again, kind of after the 2019 election, which did create a certain level of populist momentum. They were talking about all this democratic reform. They were constantly invoking FDR. Do you remember this in the kind of yeah. early days? You know, there was this discussion. Levelling up was kind of cast in that particular His, It would be Johnson's mold. New Deal, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. All this sort of stuff. And a recognition that Brexit wasn't just about the European Union, although of course it was. It was also about people wanting politics to respond to their needs, mm. to actually listen to them, all the rest of it. But it was, it, it was just striking how he naturally kind of bobbed back towards these establishment orthodoxies. He almost couldn't help it. It was like the kind of gravitational mm. pull of that. And that was one of the things that undid him, I think, was because to the extent that he had a programme, it was increasingly quite incoherent. He wanted to level up the country whilst levelling it down via net zero. Yeah. And also, as, as you gestured to, it's not even clear that he's really firm in these convictions at all. He just wanted something mm. to sell himself with. And this is the thing that bizarrely sort of landed upon, I guess. It's, very, it's similar to the whole thing of the failures of the fight against wokeism, which is that, you know, as we've explained till we're blue in the face, the, the reason why you disagree with all this wokery stuff is not just because it's ridiculous, but it's because you have a fundamental principle belief in freedom yeah. and freedom of speech, freedom of expression, people's ability to associate with each other and talk with each other freely in relation to attacks on freedom of speech mm. in the police and crime courts bill, Pretty Patel just being allowed to run riot with censorship wherever she wants, online safety bill, all of these, the government pretty much is characterised at the moment by left, right and centre attacking freedom, freedom of protest, freedom of speech in all its forms. And so that means that the the kind of the war on woke or any kind of populist angle they might have had there, because that is popular with people, because mm-hmm. people don't think that the being sort of Black Lives Matter and white privilege and, you know, trans activism, all that stuff is interesting, that they failed to connect with that because you have to have a principal belief in freedom. And again, because even though he blusters about being a libertarian and he's called a populist and all this kind of stuff, he doesn't and his government doesn't. And most important for us now certainly none of the people that are yeah. coming looking for his crown have even less of a concept yeah. of freedom. There's so much work. I mean, you were talking earlier, Fraser, about the uh, Boris Arrangement Syndrome, the accusation of lying and mm. all the rest of it, as if Boris Johnson invented lying in 2016 and that politicians had only ever been completely upstanding where the truth and statistics or anything yeah. else was ever there, that there'd never been a sex scandal in Westminster before uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson came along. The fact that uh, Alistair Campbell became a national, um, almost correspondent on the subject of truth and standards in public life. He was on it, Question Time last night, just sounding off about and it. And got his ass handed to him by Tim Stanley <laughs> in one did. moment, which was quite good. It's starting, the shine's starting to come off, maybe because he's no longer needed. Uh, but the cynicism of it was mm. absolutely stunning. And in, especially coming from the kind of old Blairite blob, which is responsible. If you want to talk about degradation of trust in politics, you want to talk about lying and bullshitting. If you want to talk about, uh, again, barbarous foreign wars, let's, uh, let's again, it's, it's absurd that we're getting to that point. But in many respects, at the same time, I think part of the problem with this government is that in the end, it became too much like its predecessors. Yeah, It had no point to it beyond its own survival. Didn't really know what it was for other than the pursuit of power. Boris Johnson in the final few days kind of clinging on, um, saying he had to deliver for his voters, despite not really being clear what it was he was trying to deliver and to whom. Again, I think that was that was the issue here. And it was maybe always there, but nevertheless um, became starkly clear in the final few days was that despite all this talk about this gun being so aberrant, um, so unlike anything we've ever seen, proto-fascistic, all the rest of it, it was far too like its predecessors in, mm-hmm. so far as being kind of at drift um, and idea light and not really sure what it's there for other than to be in government. 
And let's finally talk about the future. I mean, clearly Boris and his government ran out of steam, you know, was was unable to capitalize essentially on the populist energy that brought it to power. But, you know, can we be optimistic about the future, Tom? I think we've got to recognize that this will be taken as a big boon to the basically the forces of anti-democracy, the technocrats, mm. the people who want to reverse the gains of the post-2016 era. We shouldn't beat around the bush about that. They're all celebrating yeah. this week. Uh, they all spy on opportunity to basically reverse all of that. Um, and the fundamental problem is that, again, there's, there's no obvious kind of contender for someone to, to kind of pick up that energy that previously existed kind of to reverse the demoralisation as well of kind of recent months and years as this government has started to take hits and start to crumble. Um, and all of that is going to be very, very serious. At the same time, I think both sort of diehard Boris fans as well as the Ramonas, if you like, make the same mistake, is that they kind of personalise this particular issue. This mm. idea that you get rid of Boris um, and then suddenly all of these voters are going to think, you know what, we were wrong yeah. to think that we should get out of the European Union. We were wrong to think that we should matter more in politics. We were wrong to think that politics should be about us rather than the SW1 circus or whatever. It's ridiculous. Mm. And even if they might mount some kind of short-term gains um, might be able to kind of claw back more influence and prominence and power than they had previously. I think the story that we've seen in America, that we're seeing in the Netherlands at the moment or wherever is that even in France, which again was, you know, Macron haunted, you know, hailed as the person who defeated populism, this isn't going away and it will take different forms because the fundamentals haven't changed. People want more democracy. People want their, you know, values to be reflected in public life. They don't want to be scorned. They don't want to be condescended to and they're not just going to pack up and go home the difficulty is now is again reversing that demoralization which has undoubtedly taken place as a result of not just this week but you know previously as well and ella what's your thoughts well i'm i at the moment i'm incredibly jaded because i think brendan really hit the nail on the head when he said that the you know the nature of this demise of boris is inherently apolitical it really is a, you know there is no ideology behind it in fact actually he even says if this were a kind of hard, intense Hasseltine style mm. remain a pushback, yeah. at least you'd have something to yeah. to kind of put your finger on. But this it really is just a circus of personalities. Mm. And um I think it's it, it's gonna sound to voters and look to voters like a real insult. You know, there are very not to kind of keep banging the drum about the cost of living crisis, but there are very serious challenges facing this country. And we're now gonna have, you know, Boris Johnson said to uh Tory party uh, politicians. Don't worry, I'm not going to do anything for the next few months. There'll be no radical policy changes. I'm just, you know, don't worry about it. And you think, well, Christ, if there was ever a time we needed some radical policy changes, it would be now. This isn't the time to piss away three months. But, you know, the important thing, I think, for voters to recognise is that if Boris had stayed, nothing would change. Now that he's left, nothing is going to change necessarily, even if there was a snap election, and which actually I, I'm, I'm increasingly more interested in because I just feel that the kind of the nature of a Tory leader being voted in by a sort yeah. of puff of smoke yeah. is not legitimate, but actually nothing would change. And I think you have to, it's time to maybe throw back and, and encourage the idea of throwing back the power to the voters, to some of us who are so demoralised post-2016, to kind of shake ourselves up a little bit and say, actually, if we just carry on letting this this circus continue, nothing will change for us and all we'll be able to do is moan. I don't know what shape that will take, but trying to reinvigorate that sense of of democratic opportunity that has come from 2016 that waned but was still there in 2019. I think that's the most centrally important thing. And remembering that politicians might be in Westminster and they might run the country 
in terms of you know technically but it's actually us who run who are supposed to run them we should start flexing our muscles a little tom let's talk just finally about 2019 mm. you know this election changed britain forever surely that's even if boris has kind of squandered its opportunities there was something there that could be recaptured i think so i think it's easy to forget how important and how seismic that was you know second only really to 2016 insofar as just the public impressing themselves on the political stage and saying we have to be listened to you know mm. you remember you know the way in which um, that election saved brexit from the clutches of the remainer parliament closed the issue and also the fact that to a certain extent it has forced the political class to respond yeah i mean it was fascinating to see as we were talking a bit about earlier boris johnson betray his government as the people's government to put all of these democratic reforms front and centre. The levelling up agenda, yes, it hasn't really come to anything whatsoever, but that was obviously a recognition of what had fundamentally changed. This week, we had Keir Starmer pretending to be okay with Brexit. There's mm. no one who could win an election, it seems to me, or certainly not a Tory leadership election on a platform to, um, again, undo Brexit. Now, should we trust any of these people as far as we can throw them, particularly those who spent so long trying to overturn Brexit? Of course not. But it, it shows how powerful mm. those two votes put together was, particularly um, working class voters across Britain being ignored for so long, particularly taken for granted by the Labour Party. Through 2016 and then 2019, they made themselves matter. They put themselves on the electoral map. And for all things that have been squandered over recent years, in terms of delivering that, in terms of actually getting Brexit through, even in imperfect form, Boris Johnson, that election rightly takes its place, I think, in the history of kind of the battle for democracy in Britain, essentially. He's proven himself to be a deeply inadequate vessel for turning that into something more durable, something for the long term and all the rest of it. Um, and there are potentially setbacks to come, but there's so much there to be recaptured. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.